message about whether we have worship and when we have worship and when we don't have worship, text the word TABLE to 33222, and I will make sure that you stay in the know. And lastly, thank you for your financial support of this community. We couldn't do it without you, so we appreciate you. We love that you're in our corner as we endeavor to be in yours. Thank you for being part of this community. And now Debbie's going to bring the word. Do it, Debbie. Thanks, Maggie. I have to tell you guys when Mount Smithster Word and I were like, well, glad it's Maggie doing it tonight because she does it better than anybody. Appreciate you, Maggie. Um, hey, I'm Debbie Manning, one of the pastors here at the table. Um, good to be with you all tonight on this Wednesday night. We, um, we think it's been a lot of fun kind of trying Wednesday nights, at least for the month of August. Um, kind of got a decent turnout. Summers, summers can be hard. But hey, we're continuing on in our Eric Minton book, um, It's Not You, It's Everything. And tonight we're kind of digging into chapter 9 a little bit, which is what if we weren't afraid of dying? How to, how to do more Oh, I'm sorry. How to do more than live forever. That's how to do more than live forever. It's been a really good book. And as people have continued on in it, uh, there's been more questions and more challenges as we sort of look at our faith. And as I had looked at this chapter this past week, I was thinking a lot about a couple, um, an elderly couple. I actually officiated her funeral yesterday at Christ Presbyterian Church. And two months to the day, I officiated her husband's funeral. And she died two weeks after we celebrated his life. And it was so um, inspiring to think about them and their faith and their love story because they had a true love story. I knew them because they were involved in the care ministries, but I got to know them intimately when they fell very sick. They ended up in the hospital um, almost dying just a few months apart from each other. This was a few years back. And it was so incredible to watch their face a faith that was um, deeply rooted, but it evolved over the years because they were people that led with love. They were people that had this foundation in Jesus but held it humbly. And it was so amazing to see them suffer and struggle but continue on in their faith with no ask back. And that's what this chapter is about tonight. It starts out with the bang with this, this quote. From Gustavo, who wrote a book on Job, can human beings have disinterested faith in God? That is, can they believe in God without looking for rewards and fearing punishments? Even more specifically, are human beings capable in the midst of unjust suffering, of continuing to assert their faith in God and speak of God without expecting a return? I think that is a challenging question for our faith. Because while I think a knee-jerk reaction would be, oh no, I, I, I would continue to believe in God, I think when the rubber hits the road, it challenges our faith. And challenges like a subtle all been taught about reward, that if we do all the right things, and about punishment, and I think we hear this reflected really beautifully in the story of Job. A lot of you are familiar with the story of Job in the Hebrew Bible. He was a faithful man of God. He had it all. He had children and land. He had livestock. He had prestige. He, was, he had everything. But Satan comes to God, as the story goes, and he says the only reason that Job is even faithful is because his life is so good. Easy to be faithful when your life is good. So God allow, allows 
Satan to take everything, and he takes everything, his children, his land, his servant, and to top it all off, he covers him with these really, really painful sores. And how will he, how will Job continue on in his faith? This is a God that he looked to for help and protection. Will Job reject God? Or will he keep the faith? Or back to our original tarot, Guterres, he asks, can human beings have a disinterested faith in God? Can we believe in God without looking for rewards and punishments? Will Job, in the midst of all this unjust suffering, continue to have faith in God? What I love about this story is that his friends show up. He's got come from other countries. And initially you're like, man, these guys get it. They show up to lament with him, to comfort him. And for seven days and seven nights, they sit with him in silence. They don't say a word. But there's a shift. It's almost like they couldn't take it anymore. And for the next 35 chapters, those three friends, they try to come up with the answer to the why of Job's suffering. It's almost like they're not able to handle the mystery of the suffering. So they jump to all these different conclusions. So Ilfaz, he figures that God doesn't inflict suffering on anyone unless they deserve it. And then you who says, God is just this wise and benevolent God. So don't ask any questions. Do not rock the boat because you'll just get more suffering. And then we have Zophar who wraps it all up, who says, God's trying to keep, teach you a lesson. So Job, you better listen. You better pay attention and you better repent. The reasoning that's foundational to all of it is that God doesn't send suffering to people who don't deserve it. Somehow they've sinned. Somehow they're wicked. If you've suffered a tragedy or a loss, then you must be responsible for it. And that's called the theology of divine retribution. That God blesses those who are faithful and he punishes those who sin. And if we all think that that sounds far-fetched, that is everywhere in Christian culture in this country today. You can just look at that health and wealth gospel. You can be in pastoral ministry in some of the most progressive churches, and you almost always hear someone say, I guess it was God's plan. These painful, painful words that, that do the opposite of comforting anybody. I think it's important to note that this theology is actually um, dangerous. I remember early on in my pastoral ministry, there was a, a mom who had a three-year-old who was a deadly aggressive form of cancer. She actually ended up leaving the church that I was at because she was told by another church that if she just prayed hard enough, if she actually looked at all the sin in her life and repented, that her child would be healed. And she stuck in there with that church for months, you guys. And guess what? Three-year-old Ian ended up dying. Can you imagine what that did to her relationship with God? Can you imagine what that did to her own grieving, to her own sorrow? But that theology is dangerous. Any one of us who has spent time with those that are suffering know that it's not an easy place to be. Because there's something in us we want to find out the why, we want to fix it, we want to take away the pain, and the reality is we cannot do that. We cannot do that. And the difficulty is when we show up for other people is that we've got to set 
ourselves aside. And so much of what Mitten's talking about in this chapter is about dying to self. What does it mean to take yourself out and just show up and be? Because so often our responses to some of these things are really about ourselves. And it never hit me as hard as it did in this moment 12 years ago when I was a Minneapolis police chaplain, the difficulty and just standing with someone. And I was on call. We used to do a three-day-a-month call. And I got notified there was a car accident. There was a 22-year-old who had burned 98% of his body. They were holding him on life support so his family could get there from Lakeville to say goodbye. For whatever reasons, their computer system was down at Hennepin County Medical Center. They couldn't get the chaplain in, so they asked if the police chaplain would come. So at the time, my own son was 22 years old, and I have to be honest, my first knee-jerk reaction was about me. Thank God that's not me having to say goodbye to my son. And with great intention, I had to set myself and take my own emotions up. And I sat with the burn unit doctor and the two parents for four hours as they said goodbye to their 22-year-old son. And I'll never forget the moment that mom, who was my age, as the burn doctor was explaining what would happen and what was going to happen, looked at me and grabbed my arm and said, help me, with tears in her eyes, and said, I don't understand what he's saying. I had no words. I said, I'm sorry. Put my arm around But that's what it means to show up to people is to set ourselves aside. And I don't think that's our natural reaction. It's hard to be with people, pain and suffering and grief and loss, knowing that the road ahead is going to be so difficult, that there'll be a lot of uncertainty. And our first instinct, like I said before, is to figure out the why and then fix it. Somehow we imagine that we can solve it, that we can make it better. I think we want everyone to get back to normal as fast as possible because that makes me more comfortable. If you get back to normal, then I don't have to be in that pain with you. I think the other reason we like to fix it is that somehow, somehow, not only is that pain not right in front of us, but if we answer the why, we can avoid the same fate. I don't know a lot about all this, but what I do know and what I have experienced is there's rarely an answer for the why. Really hard stuff happens, and it's part of all of our lives. It looks different, and the seasons are different. But I think there's something in us that would rather give a reason for the suffering than actually sit in the mystery of the suffering. And when we do that, when we try for the answer, we make it about us and not something bigger. And likewise, Job's friends, they succumb to that temptation. And of course, in the Christian, we do the same thing. And even though it looks different, the language is a little different. But the message is the same. Get over it. Move through it. You've got to move on. And there's been so much harm done by well-intentioned Christians, well-intentioned Christians who say, God's got a plan. It's all in God's timing. He'd never give you more than you can handle. But here's, problem, here's what's problematic. That God talk, it actually, in the midst of crisis, it actually bypasses and silences the pain and suffering that we're in. 
It chooses defending God over sitting in the mystery of it, in the hard parts of it. Job and his friends, Job's friends were hell-bent on defending God by placing the blame on Job. In this self-imposed um, choice of blaming Job or blaming God, they chose to harden their hearts and they turned their back on their former friend. And what Mitten says in his book is that in the midst of human tragedy, our reaction doesn't necessarily reflect that we feel bad for other people. It often reflects that we feel bad for ourselves. And that God talk, that's more about us and our belief and our worry and our fear. This need to believe this is true. So we have this feeling of having some control over life that is actually out of control. And the saddest thing about it is when, when we are in that place, we can't meet the needs of those that might be suffering around us. And I think Mitten nails it. He nails it when he asks this question. For whom exactly are most of these responses to suffering given? Well, we know in this story it certainly wasn't for Job. Because here's his response to his friends. Job 13, look, my eye has seen all this. My ear has heard and understood it. What you know, I also know. I'm not inferior to you, but I would speak to the liar to argue my case with God. As for you, you whitewash with lies. All of your worthless physicians, if you would only keep silent, that would be your wisdom. Will you speak fa falsely for God and speak deceitfully for him? Deceitfully for him? Will you show partiality toward him? Will it be well with you when he searches you out? Or can you deceive him as one person deceives another? Your maxims are proverbs of ashes. Your defenses are defenses of clay. And what Job saw is that his friend's response was actually a, a thinly veiled self-interest pretending to be orthodoxy. What Job experienced was their inability to see his pain, to step into that pain. Because for them, his pain stood in their way, the way of their own security. Mitten says this in his book, It's Not You, It's Everything. Job's accusation cuts right to the heart of what has become of much of what passes for faithful Christian practice within American capitalism. When Christians believe that financial success and access to power are the surest metrics of our holiness, that eternity has, cut, has a cut list that our God is a notoriously disappointed and destructively entitled Heavenly Father. It is impossible to see there's this anything else but a relief and a warning. That kind of faith is about reward and punishment. And it brings us back to our question, are human beings capable, are we capable in the midst of unjust suffering to keep our faith in God without expecting anything in return? When that rubber meets the road, and I would say, if we're willing to lean in, if we're willing to sit in that pain, I think that's when everything changes. So throughout the story of Job, he desperately tries to make sense of, he cries out, he challenges God. And after what feels like a long period of silence, God responds. He responds out of a storm, but he never answers the question that Job has. Why? 
why me? Why the, why the suffering? But instead, God takes him on this creation appreciation tour where he starts with, where were you when I laid earth's foundation? And what God does is he reveals himself, the awe of him, the creator. He reveals himself and his presence to, jo to Job. And what it tells Job is that God is alive. God is competent. God cares. God is present. Some of you may remember a few years back in this community, community we read Brian McLaren's book called Naked Spirituality. And the goal of spirituality, McLaren would say, is to lead the naked person to stand trustfully before the naked God. I think that's where Job led. McLaren goes on to talk about the seasons of our life and that sometimes those seasons are grief and loss and uncertainty, adversity. And in those places, we'll experience rage and exasperation and desperation, refusal, lament, even agony. But here's what comes next. And McLaren calls it, behold. When we sit in those spaces and we're vulnerable and we're honest with God and one another, and we go through all those deep emotions and experiences, the next thing that comes is behold. And that's the experience of wonder and a deepening by seeing. And I can tell you that that's been my experience. In my own life with grief and loss and crisis, in these privileged spaces of walking alongside people, it is hard. Hurts. There is a moment of behold where you see God show up in ways that you never anticipated, ways that do blow you away. And it's beautiful. And in Job's wrestling, his questioning, his doubting, putting God on trial, I would say he not only kept the faith, he experienced God in a way that changed him. God met him where he was. And then behold, the awe of the creator. And here's the thing, friends. You can't get there to the behold without being here. And that's a hard truth of our life. But the beauty is, when you go there, you know that God's in it with you. And God, through others, are in it with you as well. So here's what God had to say to Job's friends in Job 42. After the Lord had said these things to Job, he said to Ilphaz the, Tem the Temanite, I'm angry with you and your two friends because you have not spoken the truth about me as my servant Job has. So if there's any doubt, friends, that God wants us to be honest, that he wants us to wrestle, that he wants us to rage if that's where we're at, I feel clearly to this. He wants us to be honest. He'll meet us where we are, no matter what we're going through. You know, I started this sermon with saying that Job's story asks the question, why did the, why did the righteous suffer? I don't think we ever get an answer for that. But I think the better question is, where is God in the midst of our suffering? How are we engaging and stepping 
Because from the story, what we know is that God will meet us anywhere. And when we're willing, when we have the courage to meet God, naked, vulnerable, life comes. I think the other thing that Job teaches us is that there's great risk in diminishing the pain we're in, pretending it's not there, negating the pain, allowing others to do that for us. There's risk in ignoring the limp, explaining away the questions. And the risk is a faith that is rooted in self-interest and in fear and a false sense of security. Because the kind of faith we're called to is one that stops fearing punishment and chasing rewards. It's a faith that frees us to experience God in the joys and in And that's life-changing. What I love about this kind of faith is it's the kind of faith that sometimes you feel like you're barely hanging on. And yet at the same time, it's a faith that never gives up. It's a faith that doesn't promise that, hey, if you follow me and you're faithful, all your dreams come through, come true. It's a faith that says, when your dreams don't, I am there. I am waiting for you. And it's the sort of faith that brings new life. It brings newness out of pain, even though we would never have the suffering for ourselves. I love what Eric Mitten says. He said, it's a newness that doesn't ride off into the sunset, but that is coughing and screaming and gurgling and terrifying and scared and limping and never quite whole, but still standing nonetheless. No one ever said this was easy. And I think those of us, we've lived some life and we know that it's not always easy. But I think the ask, the growth, the evolving is figuring out what it means to die to the things we need to die to, those things that we hold as truths that we've been taught, to die to into situations. And maybe the ability to behold is what God's calling us forward into. Will you pray with me? Holy and gracious God, um, we come before you humbly, God. We come before you and we all have our stories, those stories that hold together joy and sorrow and everything in between. God, we are so grateful for this community and that we get to do life together. We can hold each other up, that we can move forward, that we can Embrace the hard and embrace the behold. And what we're thankful, while we don't have the answers, we do have you. And we trust your promise that you are always with us. We pray all this in your name. Amen. Thank you. Timely uh, message for me tonight. I look around the room and I see that we've, you know, there's, talk about seasons, we've got people here who are experiencing, you know, joy and possibility and uh, excitement for the future. And there's those of us here who are experiencing grief and loss, the, the questioning, the wondering, the asking, the, the confusion. And to have a God who shows up, who's no matter what we came in the door with tonight, that's a, that's a God that I need to take home with me tonight. <laughs>
um, this is the part of our service where uh, we're going to gather for communion. And um, no, at no time has God been more present to us than in the person of Jesus. And I think about that night before he died, he gathered in this room with his friends, and they were kind of all over the place too. I mean, there, there was the person who was about to betray him sitting at the same table across. He was looking in his eyes. And, um, and then there were people who were saying, you know, but you're not going anywhere, right, Jesus? You're staying right here. Don't, don't leave us. They were all over the place, and he was present to them in that moment. And um, as the story tells us, he, he gathered them all up around the table, and he took bread and broke it. And he gave thanks to God, and he said, this is my body, and it's broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took wine and poured it into the cup, and he said, um, this is my blood of the new covenant. Drink this, all of you, and remember me until I come again. And those were words that were full of mystery, words that made them question, words they were not necessarily familiar with, this invitation to all, everybody's welcome. Um, and, and his invitation was to sit in that mystery. So I think that's ours as well tonight. Um, we are um, in this new season where we're doing communion in person. Do that this evening is I'm going to form one line here down the aisle while Matt and Lauren sing, and you'll come to you'll come forward if you are not ready to receive communion in person and you'd prefer to receive the prepackaged elements. We'll have a basket of that. You can still receive the words "Body of Christ broken for you, Blood of Christ shed for you," and then you can go take those elements on your own. Um, but if you're ready, we'll also have a tray of gluten-free elements. All of them are gluten-free tonight, and you can um, come up and receive that. You'll take a piece of the bread. Oh, wait, no, before that, we're, we're going to wash our hands. There's some um, hand sanitizer here, and I'm going to put it out. You're going to wash your hands before you pick up the pre-cut bread off the tray. <laughs> and, then, um, and then you can um, dip it in. We're going to do it. Take a piece of bread, dip it in the cup, and receive those words together. Um, will you stand with me? And together we're going to say the prayer that Jesus taught his people to say. Our God, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. stolen I hear your whisper 